What's better than one John? Here's Johnny. Hmm. Nobody really knows. That's why we put two of them together. This is Kenzano and Wilner, a.k.a. John and John. Well, a couple of few times a year, Wilner and I do a Q&A episode where we solicit questions on social media. And and uh, we have a we have a bundle of questions here that we have compiled and we put it into four categories. But Wilner, I got to start today's podcast by telling you that have you ever have you ever ended up on the phone with the Audubon Society? No, no, no I cannot say that. I. <laughs> you, can, you can say you have not. Uh, yesterday I was on the phone. With the good people at the Audubon Society, we had a fledgling blue jay show up in our backyard. Couldn't fly, just kind of hanging out in the backyard. The dog was barking at it, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know whether I should move it, leave it. Um, you know, certainly got the dog away from it, but did not know what to do. Do you know what to do if you find a fledgling blue jay, since this is a Q&A episode, in your backyard? I, I, I no, I have no idea. <laughs> I would be stumped, and I would have. I'm not even sure I would have thought to call the Audubon Society. That was my I might wife. Have called it my, animal rescue. Yeah. My my wife was uh, the smarter one. I got on the phone with them. They told me that as long as it's not injured, just leave it. That the family of blue jays will come back for it, and just keep your dog away from it. And if it's injured, or you know, it's it looks like it's not doing well, then you can scoop it up and you can take it in, bring it in for an evaluation. Like, I didn't know you could do that even. So um, I did pick it up and I moved it in kind of a, a woodsy area of our backyard and I left it. And then I was uh, taking the trash cans out later in the day and lo and behold, I peeked into the backyard and I saw three adult blue jays sort of like hanging out in triangular formation around this fledgling. Like, you know, each of them like eight or ten feet away from it. They were feeding it. Wow. That is something else. I couldn't believe it. I was blown away. Not that, you know, I'm like Marlon Perkins or anything, but bird people are probably like, yeah, dummy, that's what they do. They take care of each other. But I just thought it was amazing to see the Blue Jays take care of the Blue Jay. But uh, that, of course— We can learn a lot from that. You can learn a lot. Humans could. And leave nature alone, by the way. Yeah. All things being equal, leave the bird alone. The family will come back for the bird or whatever, as long as it's not hurt. Uh, I'm John Canzano. You can read me at johnconzano.com. Get a free subscription or a paid subscription. Uh, I'm with the great John Wilner, Bay Area News Group. You can find him at pac12hotline.com. Uh, we have a Q&A episode. We've got it separated into four distinct categories. Media rights, expansion, football, and other. So this is like Jeopardy. But Wilner, I'm going to let you pick from the pool of questions. Uh, where do you want to start on media rights? You know, let's start. Let's. St- I think we should start broad. Okay. And there's plenty of stuff. There's specifics here, but let's start broadly, because there's a lot of impact to this. The answer to this question: How difficult has it been trying to get insight into the Pac-12 happenings? Right. I think this is like this is a topic unto itself. The the messaging, the the way the conference has gone about trying to keep this whole thing quiet, and the impact that that approach has had. So what what do you think? I think the conference has misfired from go, you know, last July. When it comes to the messaging, the crisis management, um, the PR of this media rights negotiation just hasn't been great. And I think that's hurt the conference in a number of ways. Also, I think we'll agree that it uh, it takes a lot of expertise. It takes great sourcing. It takes 
um, the ability, like not necessarily like a beat reporter who's covering a team or a program or even a conference, uh, isn't necessarily going to be equipped to handle a media rights um, negotiation as in, from a coverage standpoint. It's 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 just outside of what you are used to covering. It's the hardest thing to cover in college sports, and a big reason for that is because the decisions are made outside of the normal pipeline of information, right? Media media folks, uh, you know, website operators who typically write about college sports, especially college football, right? They've got their sources, they've got their their options for getting information on coaching searches, injuries, recruiting, uh, that that kind of stuff, right? This is not taking place within that space. These decisions are taking place at a different level. So sourcing isn't as good. And also the experience of filtering the information for a reporter, which is a critical piece of reporting, you don't know how to filter information that you're unfamiliar with. So I think that that has been a, that's a big problem when it comes to realignment reporting in general. And the Pac-12s, Kind of radio silence for the most part over the last 11 months, you know, has created a vacuum. Now, I, they're serving, you know, the, the negotiating partners don't want all this stuff out in public. So they're serving their negotiating partners. But because it's taken so long, there's this gigantic vacuum, like, it's, you know, black hole. And that's uh, sucking uh, misinformation is is filling that void. It's not what the sports journalist, typical sports journalist has been trained to cover. It's not where they're sourced. But I do think that if you have pre-existing relationships with sources who are in that room as part of that discussion, it can be incredibly helpful. This is when experience and this is when um, all those uh, phone calls that you never really report on or all those conversations you may have in the press box or in the elevator at a stadium really pay off for you because then, you know, you do you have established some rapport and some trust and I have found that I could get information on what is happening in the room. It's not uh, coming on a consistent basis. There have been different times where I felt like the presidents have, uh, you know, kind of gone out on their own publicly. Uh, I think the PR and the crisis management from the conference from Go was mishandled. Um, I think the I think that's one of going to be one of the things that I would expect the Pac-12 to evaluate after the deal gets done is like how did we handle it internally? What was our messaging? What could we have done better? But I have I believe from the beginning that the Pac-12 was probably, uh, as you say, trying to act uh, professionally out of respect for its partners it was negotiating with. I also think that that the presidents and chancellors, at least in the beginning, kind of, uh, you know, curled up uh, into a ball or maybe they just joined elbows and and decided that they weren't going to say much publicly. Like they issued that initial statement about opening their rights negotiations early and then they just kind of went quiet for a while and that vacuum got filled by a bunch of misinformation and speculation and that has hurt the conference i think to this point but i feel like i have a a a good feel for what is happening right now in that in that room um i'm i'm confident of that but i uh i also am not gonna say that i know every word that's been said in every position that's been said and and frankly when you hear things that come out of that room or from a consultant's mouth, you've got to double check and triple check and check with a second source and ask follow-up questions. I mean, that's just being responsible. Let's, uh, we got, I mean, we had like 50 questions. So, you know, we are not, certainly not going to get to all of them. We're going to do our best to get to, you know, to cover as wide of a, 
a sweep of topics as possible, though. Here, what do you like next? Well, I want to I want to go with one that dovetails. Um, you know, w- one listener asks, "What reason do the Pac-12 presidents and chancellors have to keep floating out deadlines, even if they aren't firm ones?" I uh, get that people are anxious to get it done, but all it turns into is fodder for Big 12 Twitter to troll them. And, you know, the latest is Kirk Schultz at the uh, Regents meeting last week sort of floated out this, uh, you know, 70 percent chance that it gets done in two weeks thing. Wilner, what reason do the presidents have for floating out deadlines? I think the the big thing with Schultz to, to know on that comment specifically was he was re- responding to a question from their board of regents when presenting the budget. So that's a little different than doing a media interview, but he's certainly done a few. Arizona's Robert Robbins has as well. Uh, you know, and I think that it's also, if you think, if you kind of lay out the whole time frame, there's only been two real waves of comments from the presidents that we had that spate in uh, March, Robbins, Utah's uh, Taylor Randall, uh, I think Schultz may have commented then, Michael Crow at ASU. There was a few. They thought it was going to get done based on their comments. They thought it was going to get done sometime in March. It didn't get done. So the comments looked like they were, you know, just grasping for straws. But I think that they did think that. And obviously something happened that delayed it. So now we are, what, two, three months later, and there's another round of comments. But it hasn't been a consistent message public message from the presidents. There's really been only two periods of time when it's happened. Yeah, I th- I think back in late February, early March, you know, despite what presidents and chancellors are saying, I think you and I agree that they saw some numbers and they got a general feel for where things were. And I think that sparked the initial sort of everybody coming out, backing each other. And I do think what you saw were some of the more outspoken presidents in the conference who who uh, I think are more comfortable talking about sports and, and, yes. and more experienced that were coming out basically signaling, hey, we're feeling good about where we are, deals near. What we weren't hearing from are some of the newer presidents or maybe those who are less versed in in uh, the, the sports media landscape. And so yeah. I think that that was a little bit of a false start by mm-hmm. those presidents. And, and I know a lot of people criticized me and said, oh, you said a deal was near. Well, I, I'm looking to these three or four presidents coming out going, hey, it feels there's, there's some smoke here. And I think right. what, in hindsight, my 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 educated guess is that they saw numbers because it was the same time I was told by two members of the CEO group that they felt like they were going to beat the Big 12's number and they were confident they were going to beat the Big 12's number. I don't know how you say that if you haven't seen numbers already. So I, I think they were getting a peek at numbers. What caused them to regroup and go back into negotiations and and wait? Um, I mean, you could speculate that maybe they were negotiating with San Diego State and they know that that June 30th deadline is looming for San Diego State. Did they were they trying to convince the Aztecs to take a smaller distribution? I'm I'm also looking what San Diego State's president was saying. She was rather confidently about being in a power five conference at the end of March Madness. So. I think, uh, you know, as I read the tea leaves there, I think those presidents felt good about where they were, good about numbers, and I think they had seen numbers. No, I agree. And and I also think people need to remember presidents, university presidents are not, they're used to talking to the faculty. They're not used to talking to the media about sports. 
And you got to keep that in mind because sometimes the terminology they they use doesn't translate to the front lines of college sports. Sometimes they're just their their background and their context is not what we are comfortable with or familiar with. You almost have to run their comments through this filtering process <laughs> and figure out, all right, this is what they really mean. Uh, here's here's one that uh, I think you should uh, you should handle here. Other than creating a lot of drama on Twitter and some misleading articles, what real impact has the Big 12 endeavor had on the Pac-12 media negotiations, meaning the messaging from big, the Big 12 and endeavor to theoretically try to disrupt the Pac-12? Yeah, I mean, uh, clearly there was strategy there that was calculated. This was not, uh, you know, uh, this was not accidental by the Big 12, and certainly they're working in, in lockstep with their consulting firm. But I think the, the Big 12 knew that by going to market early, it could potentially, uh, it would get the, the, you know, it would get the stabilization that it needed and that it could potentially cause some unrest in the Pac-12 footprint because it immediately cast the spotlight back on the Pac-12. You know, even though the Big 12 just re-upped with their existing partners, even though they may have left a little money on the table, Brett Yormark told us that they did not. Um, that will be the, that remains to be seen. I think it did put the focus and the emphasis right back on the Pac-12, and I think it was a, it was a solid strategy play. The problem is, at some point, you've got to back that up with action. And you know, here we are, months and months and months later, and I don't think the Big 12 is any closer to landing a Pac-12 team, and they may not be any closer to really doing anything of substance when it comes to expansion. And it, it may just have been all posturing, but I think it's very much the playbook of Brett Yormark when you look at his his history. And I don't mean that negatively. It's just who he is. He's, he's a salesman and he's blustery. And, and, and I, and I, in some ways I admire the confidence. It, it, it flies sort of in the face of what the PAC 12 has done to this point. But I, I think looking back, I think we're going to, I think, leave this whole thing and get back to talking football here in, in short order. But I think we're going to look back and go, gosh, the big 12 was flapping its arms. It was making a lot of noise. It was putting a lot of pressure on the Pac-12, and maybe that's all. Maybe that maybe that was the only play they had. You know, if they felt like they could shake loose one of the four corner schools or and increase, uh, you know, their foothold in college football, maybe that's maybe that's what the only play they felt they had in that space. But I thought it looked a little bit desperate, and I'm wondering, like, as we look back, if we're going to see it as you know a solid move, or should the Big 12 have been more collegial? Should it have been more about the ecosystem of college athletics going, hey, we all need to survive? Like, it's not the Big 12 against the Pac-12. It's the ACC, Big 12, and Pac-12 against the SEC and Big 10. Those are the, there's, those are where the divides are. The Big 12 and the Pac-12 had a lot more in common than the fan bases would probably want to admit. Yeah, and, you know, your Mark, who was gracious enough to come on the podcast uh, earlier this year, right, he was pretty open about it. He said, every so often, we're going to compete. And clearly he views trying to get the four corner schools as a competition. And the fact is that the PAC 12 has left itself vulnerable to that competition because this process has dragged on for 11 months and counting. So what, uh, why don't you pick one here? All right. I'm going to, I'm going to go to this one. Like you have, sir, you have said for a while now that survival of the PAC 12 is a four point favorite. Well, now we are creeping, you know, later in the game. Mm -hmm. Who has the ball, Wilner? How much time's left? What's the point differential? Um, 
you know, uh, uh, the, the listener says, unfortunately, your response will be scrutinized, but have at it. All right, I'm going to go. Mm, all right, here's the deal. Pac-12 is up by nine. The football here. Pac-12 is up by nine points. Four minutes left. Five minutes left in the game with the ball. The Pac-12 should close this out. But, you know, three and out, punt, they score. All of a sudden, could be a different game, right? But that's what Pac-12 should be able to close this thing out. They've gotten this far. Nobody's left yet. I'm convinced that they have the framework of a deal either in place or they understand the, the outline of what the, the final offers are going to be. They're not flying blind at this point. Uh, they've agreed on the grant of rights verbally, which you reported, and they're not doing that process. They're, the presidents aren't going to engage that process if they have no, if they don't know what they're agreeing to. If they have no concept of a deal, they're not going to do that. So they, the Pac-12 should close this out. They got the ball. They're up nine, four or five minutes left. But at the same time, those leads can be blown. We've seen that plenty of times. I'm going to say they're up by double digits. I, I think it's a 10-point lead. I'll go just a touch above where you are, but I like where you are, and I think you're making a lot of sense. I think they've got the ball. I think they know uh, that the members are engaged, and I think they like where the numbers are. And I think, you know, uh, as long as they get a couple of first downs here, I think they're going to be okay. But it's the next game that I'm already thinking about because I think that the length of this, exi- this contract that they're about to uh, agree upon is going to probably be a five-year deal that expires sometime around 2029. And so then it becomes the next game and positioning yourself for the next game. But I, I think right now, if you're a Pac-12 fan and you had uh, and you had uh, taken the Pac-12 minus four, I think you're you're feeling really good because you got a 10-point lead, you got the ball, and you just need George Klyovkov. Don't run the Statue of Liberty here. Don't run a flea flicker. Just, uh, you know, get first downs. Get a couple first downs and you're on your way. Yeah, Couple first downs. We'll see. That that segues perfectly into uh, another question that we got here that I think I think is real good and something we haven't really talked about. Once the new media deal is signed, what can the Pac-12 do to create value in the league for the next deal down the road? For me, that's a hundred percent a acceleration of what some of the programs have started to do. First of all, you, you can't control your media market. You can't control your television households in Pullman or Corvallis or Salt Lake City. You can't do that. You can't, you know, you can't go around increasing, changing your market. But what you can do is you can continue to invest in football. Colorado has made, I think, the single largest, uh, you know, whip, whiplash, boomerang, worst to first, rags to riches, call it what you want, but they have invested in football before even playing a game, I think their media value and what they bring to the table as a brand has increased exponentially. When I asked Bob Thompson about, you know, early on when USC and UCLA left, Fox, former Fox president, you know, we've had him on twice, we talk all about him. You know, I asked him to kind of give me an evaluation of the, the, the programs in the conference. Well, he started with television households, and then he started talking about things like success and branding, and that's where programs like Oregon in particular – which, you know, essentially has the same media market as Oregon State. That's where Oregon, you know, sort of, uh, you know, starts to surge a little bit as, with, with its valuation. Colorado's doing that. Washington State needs to do that. Oregon State needs to continue to do that. They have doubled their assistant coaching salary pool since Jonathan Smith took over. Like, they are spending money. And I would like to see 
some of these other teams in the conference really sort of evaluate, hey, where are we lagging when it comes to football and then men's basketball and the investment in those two? Because even though you're not getting the same media dollars as the Big Ten and the SEC, you have to spend like some of those Big Ten and SEC programs to stay with them. Yep, no doubt. I, I would take, I would look at that question also in terms of expansion in the present day and how does adding teams and markets now help the Pac-12 acquire chips to play in five or six years when it goes back to the negotiating table? And it was just, SMU was described to me as a chip because they're not very good, right? Football program right now is not great, obviously, but if you invite them and they invest and they get better in football and they're relevant, then all of a sudden in five years, you've got a relevant team in the Dallas market. That's a chip to play. San Diego State, you know, market's not as big as Dallas, but the, that basketball program and, and football too, that gives you a chip to play and it gives you inventory. And if we think about what media consumption is going to be like at the end of the decade, right? I mean, we're moving towards streaming. ESPN is going to be on streaming. Uh, you know, you would assume Apple and Amazon are going to continue to invest in Paramount and Peacock and all that. Though having inventory, having tonnage could be very valuable for streamers uh, in five or six years, right? There's only certain number of broad windows available on broadcast television and uh, so I think the, for the Pac-12, the longer-term play is to acquire the chips that you need to satisfy streaming demands the next negotiations. And I think the NFL has proven that I, I think what the NFL is doing with their media rights in sort of inviting new entities into the fold, you know, the, the Sunday ticket goes to YouTube, the standalone game, NBC Universal getting a standalone playoff game, you know, Amazon in the room. Um, they're, they're increasing the streamers who are going to be bidding on the next round. And so, yes, you want health in that world. And, you know, it dovetails with another question because we got another question asking about the MLS scoring uh, Lionel Messi uh, and driving subscribers to Apple TV and the MLS product. Could that impact what Apple's willing to bid on the Pac-12 media rights? I would say Coach Prime to Colorado and Messi joining MLS are great examples of investment and all of a sudden you've got more product. You've got a sexier product to sell to a streamer, and Apple is certainly interested in that. And, in fact, they're cutting Messi in personally on that Apple MLS deal. And But do you think that Messi to MLS impacts what Apple's willing to bid on the Pac-12 media rights positively or negatively? I don't think it has any impact because I think that bid's already in. It would be my guess. I, I don't think they're still looking at, you know, trying to tr figure out how much they're going to offer the Pac-12. If if they're making an offer, I think it's been in. It was in long, long before Messi joined the MLS. I would be curious, though, which is going to last longer, Dion's tenure in Boulder or Messi's tenure with Inter-Miami? I put the over-under for both at about, what, two, two and a half years? Two, two and a half. I will say, uh, I'll say that Messi, I'll, I don't know, that's a good bet. I was going to say Messi outlaws Coach Prime, but then I'm like, no. If Coach Prime wins, it's two seasons and he's gone, okay? He, he's going to win and go. And I think Colorado will be okay with that. Like, purpose served. You know, we, we have elevated the program. You have been a part of it. And hopefully they learn something from the blueprint. But I I, I think that's a great comparison. But there, 
it serves the same purpose. Like, I didn't necessarily view Messi to MLS as a negative for the Pac-12. I saw all of a sudden, like, validation of Apple TV by a, you know, global star. And, you know, Coach Prime has brought that to the Pac-12 as well. I, I, I agree with you, too. I think Apple TV's bid's probably in. And, and I think the Pac-12 knows the number. And I think now they're just waiting for the timing of, of this. And is that related to expansion? On that front, we got a bunch of expansion questions. Um, here we go. Seems like expansion candidates are, number one, San Diego State. Number two, SMU. I have not seen a consensus on number three, asked the listener. What are your thoughts? Wilner, who do you think three is? You know, I honestly don't know. I mean, I think it could be Colorado State. I know you reported that as a possibility months ago. But the fact that there has been nothing uh, r- reported about this over all these months tells me that the whoever three and four are, they're distant three and four, very distant. I, I can't – it's hard to believe that they're going to go beyond 12 teams. It's also hard to believe San Diego State and SMU would turn down offers. I think SMU would, you know, they'd they'd pay a dollar to get in the Pac-12. San Diego State would probably uh, be come be willing to come in for a, a reduced rate for sure. So I just don't know that there are legitimate three and four at this point. What do you think? Yeah, San Diego State was a no-brainer because it gets you back into Southern California, gets you more than a million TV households. That's that makes sense. Um, SMU makes sense because you're talking 3 million TV households and the ability to recruit Texas. Like people will, coaches will tell you that's important. Um, I was told by one source that Colorado State was one of the four, but it was a contingency. Now, people who have seen all the squawking about Colorado lately may go, oh, that's why maybe the Pac 12 uh, cleared itself to look at Colorado State. Maybe it was done as a contingency should Colorado have left for the Big 12. But I don't think that you would want to repeat that TV market any more than you'd want to repeat uh, adding BYU and also having Utah in your conference unless your TV partner saw huge value in that. Now, I was told that rivalries are important, some of the TV partners. Maybe the Pac-12 floated Colorado State and Colorado as a uh, blossoming rivalry, and, and the Denver TV market is not lousy it's a decent tv market so maybe there was some consideration there but i i agree with you i think it was a distant third i asked about fresno state i asked about boise state i asked about unlv i was told that fresno state boise state did not fit the academic profile they were not among the four that were considered so let's rule them out and i was told unlv was also not considered so it leads me to believe that i think number three was colorado state and I think number four, Wilner, may have been Gonzaga, just from an exploratory standpoint. And that's where it kind of – I line up with you in saying I think three and four were distant three and four. Speaking of rivalries, another good segue here. All right, assuming expansion to 12, what does the football schedule look like? Would the Pac-12 take a cue from the Big Ten to make sure certain rivalries are protected? but? not have everybody playing the same number of crossover teams, essentially. In other words, you've got certain teams that you're going to play every year, and then everything else is is a mix of, you know, two in two-year cycles. 
What, how would you? 100%. So how would you think they might set some kind of schedule up? Yeah, I think that's a hundred percent. I think it, everything we see now in college athletics is about, you know, either television or preserving the season ticket base. And I just don't see a scenario in which Oregon and Oregon State or Washington and Washington State don't play each other in a given year. Like I think they will protect that game, and they may even go farther and protect Oregon against you, Oregon State, and. Uh, give everybody two and give Oregon and Washington some protection as well. So I, I think that they would follow suit. And I think given the way we're seeing conferences schedule, I mean, hell, look at this this season's Pac-12 schedule. Uh, the conference was very careful to try to protect what it viewed as the top four or so teams in the conference. You don't have any of the top five playing each other outside of see, Oregon State hosts Utah five. Okay. The next crossover matchup between top five teams in the conference doesn't come until week seven. Like, they protected everybody who they thought had a shot to get to the playoff. And I think they will do that with scheduling. They'll protect the TV value. There's no way that the Pac-12 is going to let a season pass where you don't have those rivalry games. Right. They they certainly have to have, uh, you know— they have to accommodate the Oregon-Washington game somehow. Those teams have to play every year, which would lead you to believe that there's going to would be at least two protected games, right, uh, for everybody. The other wet thing is if you don't expand and you play nine conference games in a 10-team conference, everybody's playing everybody, right? So that's another way to ensure uh, ensure everything is protected, so to speak. But the Big Ten had a very good model, I thought, where there's – you know, you're playing three, and then you've got – well, not everybody has three protected games, but there are protected games, and then there's a, everything else is a, is a mix. And and the Pac-12 will end up doing, I would bet, something like that. And who, who becomes – let's say SMU's in. Who's SMU's rival if it's SMU and San Diego State coming in? Are you pitting Colorado against SMU? Are you trying to foster something there? Yeah, I would do that because I think Colorado. I think Colorado would like that because it would be uh, more exposure and more trips to Dallas, which is really important for them. Meanwhile, you can easily partner Utah and San Diego State. That's a huge old rivalry from the whack. To me, Utah and San Diego State, Colorado and SMU works way better than San Diego State and SMU, Colorado, Utah. The Colorado, Utah, that is, there's nothing natural about that, but at least. With SMU, you're giving the Buffs a lot of exposure uh, in the Dallas market, which is so important to them. More important to them than than any other school, just because of their geography. And, and I'm I'm giving San Diego State the Arizona schools as rivals, and I'm letting that rip at least uh, in the short term. Uh, here's a question: um, Any idea of what the potential split of playoff revenue would be for the Pac-12 now? Um, we have talked about uh, the grant of rights, including unequal revenue sharing for the college football playoff winner. Um, it looks like that's what they agreed on. Any idea what that looks like or spitballing what it should look like? It's hard to know because the playoff itself hasn't figured out, at least they haven't announced what their revenue uh, split's going to be. be, partly because I don't – I don't believe they've got they've agreed to a contract, right? I mean, the playoff has got to agree to a media deal for the twelve team event uh, starting in twenty twenty five. So they can't split revenue. They can't come up with a formula until they know who the partners are, what the money's going to be like, right? 
But my guess is, and I kind of gamed this out a week or two ago on the hotline, if if the playoff is worth two billion a year, and one million of that is, or one billion of that is set aside as a fixed pool of money for the all the conferences, and then you got one billion that is based on participation, you could you could you know sketch it out so it's two hundred fifty million dollars per round. Then you divide each round, divide that by the number of teams in each round. So, you know, if you qualify, if you're one of the 12 that qualify, you would split 250 million 12 ways. If you're in the quarters, you, 250 million is split eight ways. In the semis, it's split four ways. I think the Pac 12 should consider giving a, a serious chunk of that money to the participants. Maybe it's 50%. Maybe if, if, you know, Oregon or Washington or Utah, makes the playoff and and that split is is 25 20 million per for a participant for just making it maybe you let those schools keep 10 and then you split the other 10 something like that yeah because under the current system where they get one twelfth you know it's like eight percent right of of uh what they've earned I think right, it, and it's only six million dollars. Yeah, only six million dollars. I've heard that number that they expect maybe those berths to be worth twenty million per school that gets in, and and it could be it could dwarf that. Like your your two hundred fifty is probably not that far off. So I think that the number I initially thought about was fifty percent, and I thought, gosh, if if I'm Oregon and Washington, and I know that I could go from eight percent to fifty percent. And knowing that the pot was going to grow exponentially with the expansion of the playoff and more media partners bidding and maybe even sharing on the rights, not maybe it won't just be with one partner, I think that that would be incredibly interesting. And it rewards the programs that invest. It sort of underscores the idea of, hey, if you're pouring money into your football program, like Oregon and Washington and Utah and some others are, Colorado certainly, um, hey, you have a chance to reap a, um, a a return on that investment, and I think very fair. I don't know who could be against that in the room. No, although they may have to s- figure out a system where, you know, the percentage decreases with each advancing round. Because if if you make the semifinal, it's and it's a two hundred fifty million dollar split four ways. Are you going to let the Pac twelve participant keep? You know, fifty percent be an awfully uh, of that. I don't awful, know. They may yeah. they may downsize it as you advance. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's got to be something like that. And I don't think that I don't think the ACC is going to have the same thing, right? That that's the that's the new era. We're gonna we're gonna be getting into, you know, uh, unequal share. I think is going to happen more and more often coming up in the next media cycle. We got here's a good one. I think is important on a couple of levels. It seems like a foregone conclusion that the new media deal will have some streaming component, perhaps substantial. Will the streamers have to play by the same rules regarding game times? And I'll let you go, but this is a this is a huge topic that I think I certainly have not hit on enough, which is the importance of the kickoff times and the selection windows in this next TV deal. You I think go. It, I think it gives the conference and the the individual schools a whole lot more autonomy and a lot and more ability to push back and not beholden to a slot like you are in linear television or traditional television um still i think the streamers may want some of those games to appear in certain time frames to you know to not be up head to head against you know the best big 10 game or sec game that's going on earlier in the day 
But I think it gives you a uh, couple things. One, the ability maybe to to steer away from 7.30 kickoffs. Maybe instead of a 7 or a 7.30, it's a 6 or a 6.30. Secondarily, you don't have the six-day window. You know when your game's being played, and I think that helps ticket holders. Yeah, no question about that. And And streamers have more flexibility for sure. But, you know, it's there's going to be a trade-off at some point in these negotiations. It's going to be, all right, are we willing to give up a little money because we want control of the schedules? And, you know, I don't know how you equate the dollars, but having the the kickoff time set in advance and having them be fan-friendly fan is so important for the campus community and the entire game day environment the entire weekend what that can do for your campus just in, uh, across all branches i mean if you've got tons of alumni at the game because they knew three three months ahead that when the game the big rivalry was going to be played you know that helps your fundraising for your chemistry department so that's a real tricky piece and it will be i'm i'm very curious to see how the the select the kickoff selection process is handled and the, the night games versus the day games and Thursday, Friday versus Saturday, all that's fascinating. An important part of it that gets overlooked because there's so much focus on the money. Question, uh, Washington State fan and listener wants to know, um, Washington State's been doing a lot with less money, which we have mentioned on this podcast. Short of new donors stepping in, what can the Cougs do to go from a uh, upper half football basketball school to the top couple of spots, I'll start on this one. I I'm I've been looking and talking with uh, I've been looking at budgets and I've been talking with a lot of ads in and out of the conference about why some schools tend to have success and others don't, even though you know some are sp spending more or less. And there's always outliers, but I, I definitely see something interesting happening in this NIL space with the transfer portal. Of course, you're seeing the schools with deep pockets, donor bases that are willing to pour into the NIL. Um, you know, you're, you're seeing success there with investment and strong NIL, uh, strong functioning NIL entities. But the other thing that's going on is culture seems to matter, at least the early returns. Oregon State's a good example of it. The culture of the program is strong. They don't lose assistant coaches. They are paying their assistant coaches well. The collective is adequate. It's not going to be like in the conference. I, I, I'm a, I'd venture to say Oregon State's collective is playing around the Mendoza line. But they, they don't, they haven't, at least in the last two years, lost players in the transfer portal. They only lost six players in football to other schools. It was the lowest in the Pac-12. Utah was right behind them at eight. Now, Utah's collective is a little stronger, and they've got more continuity, but they have the same they have the same sort of blueprint within the program. They don't lose assistant coaches. So I think if I'm Washington State, I'm paying attention to that. Yes, you have to do better with your collective. Yes, you need to spend a little more. You need to find the money, even though you're, you know, the, they're operating at a deficit right now. They've got to find some money. But I think beyond that, just fostering better culture, and it certainly didn't help you know, the Nick roll of fracture of the program, I think, hurt in more ways than people really understand. And I think Washington State recovered from that. I think Jake Dickert's done a nice job. But culture, 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 because I think culture becomes everything that your NIL collective can't be when a kid's trying to 
make a decision, you know, and hey, all things are within range. Your culture can draw your your players back in. I think that's what boosts you and elevates you. Yeah, Washington State, Oregon State, you know, the the schools on the lower end of the budget, it is just tough. It, it it's it is very difficult when you're a low budget and also uh, you know not in a prime recruiting area. But you can trace success in those sports at at those both those schools to coaching, coaching hires. You know, you have very little margin for error with your coaching hires, and then those coaches have very little margin for error with recruiting evaluation, injury, staff changes. It's just tough. I, I could see Washington State, you know, if things are going well, they're competing for the conference title in a, in cycles, right? Every three, four, five years. And then they they cycle up and cycle down, cycle up. I don't – it just – it's too hard, especially when you got like Washington and Oregon sitting there. It is too hard uh, just for those schools, I think, to consistently be at the at the top. It's just – it's tough. It's, it's, it's kind of a – in some ways, it's unfair, but it's also the reality. Question coming out of the fourth quarter here of uh, questions, but uh, pack 12 road trips that would be the most enjoyable and safe for an opposing fan, in your opinion. Wilner, take that one on. Well, Stanford would be the safest because there's nobody in the stadium, <laughs> so you don't need to worry. And plus, nobody there is looking for, you know, they've all got plenty of money, so nobody's, you're not going to get mugged. Um so let's see. Most enjoyable. Ah, good question. Uh, I would say weather would play a part in that, right? I, don't, I would not recommend going to Tucson or Tempe in September, obviously, right? But those places are great in November. Um, you know, I wouldn't go to Colorado and Utah in November. I'd go, I'd go, I'd go to a game of Boulder in in October, right? What do you think? Yeah, I'm going to – I'll take a little different approach because I think automatically I kind of went to like which stadiums have the best atmosphere and I thought about Autzen Stadium in Oregon and I thought about uh, Husky Stadium and the view uh, out over the water. But I'm going to go different here. I, I I will advocate for a trip to Corvallis in Oregon State. They're they're opening the new side of Research Stadium. I've seen it up close a couple of times. It looks phenomenal. They're going to have kind of a uh, – a Bourbon Street feel within the stadium with a bunch of restaurants and bars. I'm curious to see how that's going to play, and I'm curious to see if other schools in the Pac-12 see it and experience it and go, hey, we're going to copy that. I also think uh, Corvallis is an underrated college town, and so I think you could hit the Oregon wine country. You could hit an Oregon State football game, check out the atmosphere. I don't think anybody there is going to give you a hard time. There hasn't been enough success, I don't think, in the last 30 years, so – um, I think that would be one road trip. I, I also, I will, I'll go with Tucson. I think it's one of the more beautiful 6 p.m. kickoffs in the conference. When you see the sun setting in the desert and call it true college town, I will go with Tucson. But you're right, you need to steer away from those 100-degree days in the early part of the season. And then uh, I'm going to advocate a little bit for uh, how about we go to Utah and Salt Lake City. There you go. I would also say, and it's hard when you don't know the kickoff times, right? But you could do a Arizona-ASU combo and maybe hit both games. So Bay Area, Oregon, and Arizona give you the option yeah. to see two games, whether it's Friday-Saturday or Saturday-Saturday. That's something to consider as well. Uh, here is another good one on that kind of on that front. What are your top three restaurants in a Pac-12 college town? 
I, I think I think every con- uh, first of all I think it changes. Secondarily, I'm always looking for new places. So as soon as I find a good place, I'm already mo- looking, going, "Hey, what am I missing out on?" I think that this is a great opportunity for our listeners to share theirs. Like, tweet at me at John Canzano BFT. Tweet at Wilner at Wilner Hotline. Tell us what your favorite spots are in your country. So that when I go to your college town, I know where to go. Like, we should create a whole website with all these recommendations on it. That's a great idea. I will actually venture into this one first. My favorite restaurant in the entire conference uh is is not going to be technically in the conference anymore it is versailles which is a cuban place it's in la there's actually a few different locations uh one of them is is fairly close to westwood one of them is in the valley uh but versailles is is my favorite restaurant i will also uh plug bob dobbs in tucson where i spent many a day a night and wee hours of the morning and then uh, also, and that's also, you know, just a few blocks from the stadium too. Lastly, uh, I, I used to love the uh, the Oregon Electric Station in Eugene, but I think, is that place closed? But I used to love that place and I think it has gone out of business. I cannot confirm yeah, that. The however, website that is, is not responding. So it that looks is, like it's not, the website's gone out of business. That could be misinformation. I'm That's passing what I'm talking about, there. though. Every time I give a recommendation, you know, I, and also, by the way, I think our listeners know better than I do because, you know, I, I'm popping in and out. I want to I want to hear from people who live in these towns and and go to these places even when it's not college football season. So tweet at me. I, I want your recommendations. This has been a great episode coming up, coming up on an hour here. Incredibly grateful to everybody for their support. Uh, for your questions, we had over 50 questions. Uh, we got to as many as we could here. Hope we covered enough topics. You got any final thoughts, my friend? I just think, uh, you know, I, I'm curious to see where they land with a number. We had somebody who asked, you know, what happens if the number's a little shy? Well, you know, how much of a celebration will it be if the number beats the Big 12, if it's the same as the Big 12, if it's less than the Big 12? You know, I think we're all making a lot of that because it's one of the few markers that we have to measure when it comes to this negotiation. But I think the big picture is if this conference, if the Pac-12 conference stays together and they're in range or exceed the Big 12, I think it will largely be viewed as a win. Then the secondarily thing, you know, uh, that we need to look at is, you know, how long is the deal and how soon will we go back through all this again? And what happens with the playoff and how much, you know, does that solidify the landscape enough to make another round of ex- expansion not make sense. And oh, by the way, do USC and UCLA regret going to the Big Ten? Do they reverse course and come back? I don't know. That could be a whole other episode. What about you? Well, one question we didn't get to, because I think it's worthy of an entire uh, episode, is what college football is going to look like in the 2030s and 2040s, the next media contract cycle for all these leagues, and whether there will be an upper division and a lower division, and it'll be like English football where you have relegation and advancement, right? Relegation and promotion. That was a question, and I think it's a fantastic question, and that's something that we will tackle at some point unto itself because that is the big picture stuff, future of the of the sport stuff, and all the changes that have happened in the last few years and that are currently happening you know, there's going to be a whole nother wave of massive change in the next decade. And I don't know what it's going to look like, the sport's going to look like, but I know that in 2035 or 2040, it is not going to look like it does right now. So that would be my 
to the person who sent that question in, uh, we have not forgotten it. We are saving that for a separate episode. I'm John Canzano. Read me at johnconzano.com. He's John Wilner. Where do they find you, Wilner? Pac12hotline.com, part of the Mothership Bay Area News Group. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We appreciate your support.